Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind-the-scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them. Trust in yourself and go for it because you know more than you think you know and you're better than you think you are and don't let doubt creep in. Please rise. Court is now in session. All right. Well, welcome to the Great Trials Podcast. This is Steve Lowry with Yvonne Godfrey. Um, so Yvonne, I'm uh, excited today, not only about our uh, great guest we have today, but also because we're doing something different for today's show. That's right. I am going to do, um, as most of our listeners know, you do the hard part of the show and I do the easy part of the show. <laughs> Um, but today I'm going to, I'm going to carry my weight a little bit and, um, I'm going to be, I'm going to be the Steve for today. Yeah, Um, exactly. I think it's, you know, because, uh, we've, we've had so many shows with me talking uh, on them that, uh, I think people uh, need to hear your voice and, uh, and, and stop listening to my, uh, my droning on. I think it's more like people are like, she can't just chime in every now and then complaining about Ikea or whatever other irrelevant stuff that I bring up. So (laughs) got to do some work. So, but I'm really excited because of all episodes for me to get to do it. I'm super excited about this case and also our guest, Allison McClellan. Allison, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to join you guys. Um, We are really excited. I'm going to tell our listeners a little bit about you. Um, If you want to look up Allison, you can look her up at, I should have checked and made sure this was right with you ahead of time, Allison, but McClellanLawFirm.com. Yes, that's that's right. Okay, great. That's M-A-C-L-E-L-L-A-N LawFirm.com. Allison started her career in the Cook County District Attorney's Office in Chicago, tried a bunch of cases there, and she is now a solo practitioner in Dorchester, Massachusetts. Um, She's a very successful litigator and was named Lawyer of the Year in Massachusetts in 2018. She's regularly a super lawyer, and in 2018, she obtained a groundbreaking verdict in the case that we're going to talk about today. I am really excited about it, and um, it was really, it's a really remarkable case um, for the amount both in damages and also the attorney's fees, which I'm really excited to talk about. Um, And Allison, I think it's, it was the largest verdict in Massachusetts history for a retaliation case in, in, a, in an employment case, right? Yeah, um, and in, which isn't really, to be fair, not saying much because uh, the employment cases to, to up to then hadn't really garnered any attention. Um, we did have punitive damages as an option, but they were like a unicorn. Everyone would say, oh, what are you gonna do, punitives? I'm like, yes, we have punitives available. <laughs> yes, it's right. a real thing. <laughs> So uh, to date, to, to the data of my trial, um, emotional distress, I think the largest you would see would be for maybe 300,000, like super max would be 500,000. And that's probably with a lot of, um, a lot of treatments some psychotropic meds and things like that. So this was just, um, at, well, the defense likes to call it an anomaly, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but, um, but it was, yeah, it was to date, there hadn't been anything to get a million was really not heard of. Right. Well, and so let's talk about this case because I think um, many lawyers, many plaintiff's lawyers, even um, those who don't practice in the area, I know how 
know or at least think of how hard employment cases are. And this is an employment case, which is a, um, a focus of your practice. And the case name, I didn't get to check with this with you ahead of time. So we're really going to... Um, <laughs> Test my uh, what I remember from high school French. I was thinking about that. Yeah, <laughs> I can All just right. tell you it's Toussaint v. Brigham and Women's Hospital. Oh, I was going to say Toussaint. Oh, I'm sorry. Toussaint. I didn't want to steal <laughs> you. No, <laughs> you you Your saved savior. me, but then I had to admit it. Yeah. Toussaint. Okay, got it. Um, and is it is it Jesse? Yes. Jesse Toussaint. Okay, so um, thanks to our guests, we already have the case name. Um, this was an employment retaliation and discrimination case tried in 2018 in Suffolk Superior Court, Massachusetts. Two and a half week trial. It looked like at least three days of, of jury deliberations. And um, we'll get to their verdict at the end, but just to tell our audience a little bit about the case. And then Allison, I'm gonna, there's a lot of details that we're gonna want you to fill in. Um, at the time of trial, Ms. Toussaint was um, 70 years old. She's a nurse who had been working at um, the Brigham Hospital since, looks like 2002. I saw a couple, I saw a different date in the, um, in one of the articles I read. Yes, 99. yeah, I think it was, it was, at the time we went to trial, it had been, you know, 20 something years. I, I believe it was 2002. Gotcha. Okay. And Ms. Toussaint was Haitian American and... Um, we're going to get more into the details of what happened, but um, basically, Ms. Toussaint was at work and observed another Haitian-American nurse uh, being treated poorly, being verbally abused by um, a physician. And so she reported it to management, to hospital management, that her fellow nurse was being abused. And guess what happened? The hospital did the right thing and ended racially based discrimination. Right. That's right. And that was the end of the story. <laughs> the <laughs> end. No, of course not. Um, Ms. Toussaint, which just had to be really brave to do the right thing. And um, as a reward for her standing up for her fellow nurse, she was retaliated against. Um, she was among other things that I, that I'm sure we'll talk about. She was made to take a test that they administer typically to beginner nurses. She was put in retraining. Sounds like she was told about complaints about her that came from a doctor or a patient's wife that were never really um, legitimate. And she eventually resigned in 2015, although it's what we call basically constructive termination. It was impossible for her to continue to work there. Um, and after their deliberations, the jury determined that the hospital um, did not racially discriminate, but did retaliate against Ms. Toussaint, and they awarded a verdict of over $38 million, including 463000 in lost wages, Two points at 20, 20, 20, 20, over 20. I'm sorry. As much as I'd love a 38, I, I don't want to do my still, own too much. <laughs> I even still wrote 38. Fine. 28. Wishful fake. Next time. Right, next time right, it'll be right. 38. <laughs> 28 million. Still crazy. I mean, impressive. Only, only 28. Million. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, 2.75 million in emotional distress and the big amount of the award, 25 million in punitive damages, which is a huge accomplishment. Um, that award was against both the hospital um, and a manager at the hospital. 
And then the court also, um, one of the very cool parts about this case is the court awarded attorney's fees to Allison in the amount of almost half a million dollars, $414,000. And uh, we'll talk a little bit later about the court's comments in this order, because I think it's really amazing what Allison accomplished. Um, So first of all, congratulations on this amazing result. Thank you. Um, So I guess to start out, I'm interested both for you to correct me and anything else I got wrong in that intro, um, but also if you can give us a flavor, because I obviously really summarized about the um, discrimination and retaliation that your client really suffered during that time that she stayed at the hospital. Yeah, so it was... um all employment cases, they're, they're very facts um, heavy and they're yeah, really, as, as a good attorney, you have to dig in and figure out what makes sense. You're always, I always have one eye to what the jury is going to think. Is this believable? Does this, I mean, why? So I often act like the defense when I'm interviewing them. Well, why would you do that? Because that doesn't make sense. Well, why would it be? Because obviously you have to bet things and you want to make sure that you're, you have a good client and you're, you know, what happened really happened and that you're fighting for, for something that's correct, right? So um, I, I get tons of calls for cases and I, I probably take one out of 10, maybe. Um, but it's, this case actually first came in because there were, there were two plaintiffs. And the first plaintiff was the first one that was um, having the trouble with the doctor. She came in and she had been told by other lawyers, you know, I'm not going up against this hospital. I, they're too big, I'm not doing it. And so she came in first. And then while the case was running, the second plaintiff came on board because her situation had become, you know, untenable. What was interesting, though, is um, and I there are so many facts in this. I won't go and belabor them all because we need 10 podcasts. But uh, Ms. Toussaint um, didn't actually go to management and say, this is what I observed. This happened on her floor. The first nurse was a floater. Just that, that means they just go to different floors any shift. So she happened to be on Ms. Toussaint's floor when this happened. And the nurse manager, who was a defendant in the case, um, it's a long story of sort of like people having, other managers having relationships. Anyways, the defendant manager said, I'm going to investigate this and I'm going to talk to the people who were present for it. And she, uh, she loved putting things in writing. There'd be emails and handwritten notes on the emails. And I, so one of her handwritten notes was I spoke to these three people and Jesse Chastain was one of them. All said that the first plaintiff was the aggressor, et cetera. And she's the most softly spoken, meek person I'm like, there's no way that happened. And so the first nurse ended up getting disciplined and then ran into Ms. Toussaint later because they didn't know each other. And she was like, hey, um, I got in trouble for that. Why did you tell her I was the aggressor? And she said, I didn't tell her that. So the, the, it came to light that the nurse manager had, uh, let's just say, not told, she did not tell mm-hmm. the truth or accurately <laughs> represent the situation. I, I read your closing. You called it a lie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, I'm trying to tread lightly. But, um, uh, so that's when everything came to a head. And then Ms. Toussaint brought it to higher ups and said, this is not what happened. She didn't accurately represent this. I never said that. Then everything just blew up. And so now 
Nurse Trussain was on the floor of this nurse manager. She was her direct manager. And there's um, one of the risks of working at hospitals, especially if you are under, if you're not upper management, is there's a lot of um, things that could go wrong. If somebody really wants to target you, they have a wide berth to do so. Nothing's being videoed. There's all sorts of, you know, obviously HIPAA concerns. So there's, there's lots of things that they can say that you did that you didn't actually do, but enough to paper you up and get you fired. And so what was interesting about this case, and I say interesting slash like um, so difficult, incredibly burdensome was with their reasons, their legitimate business reason for terminating her was a series of patient um, patient care concerns. So essentially I had to try a mini med mal case within this employment case and against one of the largest entities in Boston. In Boston, there's a, a major over umbrella corporation that owns the hosp- many of the hospitals. So I couldn't even find an expert because everyone either had a conflict or just were unwilling to do it. So I had to go down to Buffalo and it was just incredibly difficult. And at the time I was like, all right, well now I just have to do this. And in retrospect, I, I can't believe that it didn't kill me because it was a, it just an incredible amount of work. Yeah, it's one thing that I, I mean, a couple of things that I'll, you haven't mentioned that we'll talk about is that, you know, this was against Brigham and, Brigham and Women's Hospital in uh, Massachusetts, which if I understand correctly, they, aren't they associated with Harvard as far as the, the Harvard doctors go and, uh, and uh, the residents are there or, or from Harvard? It's a very prestigious hospital, very good reputation up in the Boston area and in the nation. Yes, Boston's got a lot of the top hospitals in the country and a whole cluster of them. And nine-tenths of them are are under the partner's umbrella. And then Harvard is their teaching school. And yes, they have um, the residents come over. So it's it's very prestigious and a behemoth, really. Right. And, and, and as you said, you had to uh, essentially... Um learn uh, medical, mal- medical malpractice type law or, or, you know, medicine to in order to try that part of the case to show that she, uh, you know, was a very qualified nurse, had been doing this for a long time, and that, you know, all of these complaints that they were sort of manufacturing against her and, um, and, and all of these things they were saying she was doing wrong uh, were really just retaliation and not that she was uh, putting anybody, because, uh, you know, I, I, it sounded like their theme was that they were doing this out of a concern for patient safety the whole time. Um, that they were just trying to make their patients safe and that she was uh, somehow a danger, but yet they kept letting her work for several years there. Right. It seemed to be an untenable position to take. And in my opinion, it always had been. I just couldn't figure out how they were going to do that because either you're, you're allowing an unsafe nurse to work or oh, she's not unsafe and you're not telling the truth. So it just, I, I could never figure out, you know, how they were going to get that to work. But uh, yeah, it was just uh, just a ton of work. And, you're, you know, this was, I just got all the medical records a couple of months before, um, for, before trial. And it was, it was just an incredible amount of work. One of my friends came to watch the trial and he was like, did you take nursing at some point? Are you, are you like a nurse? And I'm like, <laughs> you feel no, like that's, <laughs> that's on the fly. That's <laughs> right. You just well, have to know it, enough. <laughs> well, it has to be. Too like I mean you touched on this, but essentially you you've you've got these clients, and so you, you know you do have these two clients that you've spoken to about what happened. But most of the information that you need, especially the written information, is all in the possession of your defendant. In addition to 
what if they're saying that that you know if one of their defenses was obviously that she was not you know um, rendering good patient care, they're the ones who have all the medical records, and so it kind, would kind of seem like they're, you know, how are you? How do you approach a case like that when they have everything, and you know, which is kind of common in plaintiffs' cases, but you know, how, especially how do you approach it when it seems like they're just picking patients and then sending you the records for those situations. Right. It, you know, just like in any case, if, you, if the defendant is holding the documents, which usually they are, um, you, you, you just let them know you're serious. I'll do a motion to compel. There's no way that you can take this defense and not give it to me. But I also didn't want to push off the trial date because the next trial date was, you know, another, who knows, six, to eight months, a year. And I, I really wanted to keep that trial date and move forward, but I needed the records. I mean, it was, I got them very close to trial and really we just, just cranked it out. Um, and just a lot of time, but as far as getting the records, I think I would, I would, depending if they're business records, I would just do start doing a lot more e-discovery. I think that's the only way that you can be sure that you're, or at least be the most sure that you're getting most of what there is. Yeah. It is always a blind spot and we're, we are at a disadvantage for sure, but medical records, especially if they're using in their defense, there's no way they can't give it away. Uh, give it right. to me. Well, and, and it looked like that they had uh, uh, raised eight specific complaints about your client that, of, of various types of, uh, you know, patient interactions. So were you basically, you know, for each one of those basically happened to, uh, you know, basically try a case on each one of those showing how she hadn't done anything wrong or how, you know, what they had, had said, you know, was manufactured essentially. Yes. Oh, good point, Steve. I did eight med, mini med <laughs> That's I should right. pat myself on the back a little more. That's right, right. Uh, yes, no, it was. It was all eight of them. So I had to have, uh, and I was, you know, obviously if you're, you're a trial lawyer, you're trying not to bore the jury. You don't want them to check out, but I needed to get this information across because they were really leaning heavy on it. So I, I numbered them one to eight and I had, I tried to keep it as clear and short as possible, but I'm sure I did not succeed in that. But there were a number of things that um, the good part is the devil's in the details. And if you, you're just, I, I think that she, the person in question had never been questioned before. And I, I think she may have been used to kind of operating with a free reign and just saying whatever she was going to say, make a conclusory statement like they're unsafe, they're out and never had the light shown on what it is she was relying on. And I think she, at the time that she realized this was all getting blown up and I was looking at every patient and every hour and what medication they were supposed to be getting and, and what are these numbers? These, these numbers don't, there was one, one patient that had a, um, um, like a, they were coming out of the pet out of surgery into the PACU and they were starting a drip. And, and so it was like, how much medication was administered? And there was some number in the chart said, look at this number. I'm like, all right, well, look at that number. First of all, that's in your handwriting. This is a chart. Right. You're not a nurse. That's your handwriting. And if we just do simple addition, this doesn't even add up. No numbers add up to this number. Can you explain this to me now? And everyone's like, what? And then she couldn't because, you know, she didn't know. And I'm like, aha. Right. <laughs> and then yeah. there was another one. Where the, the, one of the men came out of like had a so shoulder surgery. And there was like this two-page single-space typewritten complaint about her that he allegedly sent in the middle of the night. I'm like, wasn't he on opioids? And and where did he get his laptop? What is He just came out of surgery. How is he writing this two-page single-space note? So a lot of it was just like 
you look at the jury and like, do you believe that? I don't. All right, Yvonne, this next company that we're talking about is literally a company that has been with our firm since the beginning. And I don't think we could survive with because every time we go to trial, we always have Bob or Liz or one of the other technicians who is helping us do our trial presentations. And I'm talking, of course, about legal technology services. And you can find them at ltsatlanta.com. Yes, they do all things visual. That's their big tagline. And it's definitely true. They have saved our bacon so many times and can help you out with so many more things uh, that you might even, you know, not even think about. I mean, they can help you with demonstratives for trial. They can help you with video depositions, stay in the life videos, stuff for your website. Settlement videos, witness statements. I mean, literally it is anything technology based or as Yvonne already said, all things visual. They are huge at helping with demonstratives that we put in front of the jury. They are friends of the firm and have just done tremendous work for us over the years. So pick up the phone or get on the computer and look up Bob, Melanie, or Liz at ltsatlanta.com. And you can also call them at 770-554-1633. That's Legal Technology Services at ltsatlanta.com. And Steve, don't forget, we have a gift for our listeners. Oh yeah, I totally told you to remind me and I totally screwed it up. So yeah, so what I forgot to tell our listeners is that um, if you mention the Great Trials podcast, when you call into legal technology services or write into them, uh, they will give you 10% off of your first job. So mention the podcast, Great Trials podcast, and uh, they will give you 10% off of your first job. And again, that is LTSAtlanta.com, legal technology services, uh, give them a try. I know you said the judge limited your evidence from 2010 to 2015, but um, it looked like the very first complaint um, that was made against her was the day after she basically reported what had happened to her fellow nurse. Is, was it really that close in time? Yes, but, you, you know, I'm sure that, you know, you guys have done tons of trials and you're always just sort of like ducking and weaving, rolling with the punches. They give you a motion limit and the motion limits are heard two weeks before trial. So now you've got, it was important for me to get all that other information in for the last, because she'd worked there for 20 years. So I need to show a pattern of no write-ups, stellar performance. And then I got my legs cut out for me when she said, you can only start where the bad stuff happened when the write-ups started. So yeah, she she made the decision. The judge made the decision to to start it. She thought that was the relevant time period when all this started. But it was difficult. It was really tricky how to phrase it because then, of course, you're thinking the jury thinks maybe you're hiding something because you're not talking about all those other years she had worked there. So I sort of just said, you know, for the for time constraints, the court is limiting us to the to these years, and that's why I'm telling you only about this. So don't hold it against me. And um, I forget how else I sort of um, explained that she was good at her job without getting into those years. But I, I somehow I, I did it, but not as strongly as I would have if I had had those extra years. Well, I was actually thinking, you know, I, I guess in the in the other way that you could, I mean, you could legitimately stand up there and say, you know, you're not going to hear about a single complaint for the, you know, since 2002 that she had been there you know, up until after she raises this with her boss and then all of a sudden complaints start. Um, I think there was, there may have been one tiny one. So that okay. probably wouldn't have been accurate. But I also, when I, I, I will pride myself. I played by the rules. I love a good game. I love being competitive. 
but I believe in the rules. If you have a motion, let me say you can't do it. Don't do it. Right. Um, right. And I've come up against other people that don't do that. And then I raise this thing, but I really didn't want to, I just didn't want to give them any grounds for any sort of appeal. I wanted to keep it a clean fight. And cause I, I already knew I felt good going into it and I felt great the closer we got to the end of it. So I just didn't want to introduce any problems. Right. Right. So related to that, you, you represent, you were representing both nurses. Was it a, a strategic decision for you to go with Miss Toussaint's case first, or was that something that logistically just worked out that way? No, the judge uh, a couple of weeks before um, severed them. So there had already been a motion to sever way early in the case that was denied. And then they, they brought it up again and the judge severed them. So I was planning on doing it all together, but in retrospect, it would have been, it was already incredibly difficult. It would have, that would have just been maybe just really cumbersome. Did you get to pick which one you did first? Uh, well, we, we all agreed that Ms. Toussaint's would be more uh, lengthy and cumbersome because of all these um, complaints of, of um, lack of standard of care. So we decided to go with the more burdensome one first. Gotcha. We should point out, I mean, unless I'm wrong, Allison, you tried this entire case by yourself, right? Yes. I mean, you had multiple opposing counsel on the other side. Yes, two trial counsel. um, And then the, so they brought in trial counsel very uh, shortly before trial, the partner that was on the case for the duration, and then the associate that had also been on the case for the duration. Then they had many um, people, I don't know, underlings bringing stuff and, guy that came and picked up their boxes as I'm dragging my boxes out behind me, probably falling all over the sidewalk. I was like the, uh, the, the poor country lawyer. <laughs> right, right. Right. Well, I read an article that you wrote that was about doing it yourself. And, you know, when we talk about, there are, I think, of people that we have talked to who, on this show, who have tried the cases themselves, but like, they're like the lawyer sitting at counsel's table and they're doing their own opening, closing and doing all the witnesses. But it sounds like you really do everything by yourself. And I'm interested to hear you talk about that and why you, why you like to do it that way, why you choose to do it that way. Well, in the beginning, that wasn't really, it was a necessity. You know, you're, you're <laughs> right. just a solo. It's not like, I'm like, well, should I hire this staff or should I not? I don't know. Yeah, yeah. It was like, I, you know, I take out the garbage, I lick the envelopes and I do the closings. <laughs> I do everything. Um, and I, you know, I like it from a control free perspective because I like to touch every piece of paper. I did have a couple of law clerks early on fielding discovery and putting things in, but you know, they're, they went on, graduated and went wherever they went. Um, but for the most part, it was me going through all that, but by touching every piece of paper, you know what's where. I can tab it. I can highlight it. I know what I've seen. Um, and I will say that, and also in trial, I'm a bit of a control freak because there's so much to, like, as you all know, you're doing a witness and then they, you know, they answer you, but there's some weird inflection in their voice or they hesitate or something and something's hinky. So you say, hold on, now you can go off on another side thing and maybe get something very valuable or even just in front of a jury, just their physical reaction. If you've given that witness away to somebody, then it may not get done. So I guess it's a control freak answer. 
but I will say that it was, it was just so physically taxing. Yeah. And I, if I were to do a big one again, I would probably bring some people on, um, at least for the trial part. But also yeah. the other part is I just like right now I can do, I have my own schedule. I can do what I want. If I have people in the office, I have to physically go to the office to make sure they're doing stuff. It just, it messes up my schedule. I like yeah. to ski in the winter. I like to go to the beach <laughs> in the summer. So <laughs> really, I really like to have control over my schedule. <laughs> that makes sense. It sounds, but I mean, it's just what you said. It sounds exhausting because you think about how you're in trial, you know, and when the jury's in the, uh, in the box or even, you know, when the judge is there, you've got to be on. I mean, you have to be like your best self all day, but then you're, you're going home after trial and, and you're doing everything for the next day. Oh yeah. No. And I'm a big sleeper. I really love sleep. And so I'd be like up to three in the morning. I'd, I'd sleep for two hours. I'd be back up. It was very unenjoyable. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I mean, it just you know, I know how taxing trial is, and you know, I'm usually uh, you know got at least one co-counsel, and sometimes two, and you know, and you're you're dealing with all the different issues going on, and it, it, I mean, it, you're physically exhausted after that. I, doing it by yourself against multiple you know opposing counsel for 14 days, I mean, that's uh, that's a marathon. Yes, yeah, it sure was. I would probably get someone to help me next time or at least get someone to carry my boxes at the very right. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Um, so I was curious, um, there was something mentioned in your closing and, and maybe I missed it, but um, you referenced the cheeseburger event and <laughs> I was wondering what that was. <laughs> oh yeah. But, yeah. Reading my closing, I was like, this is going to be great. I read back through it and I was like cringing. I'm like, oh my God, how could anyone even follow this? <laughs> no, I thought it was very organized. Well, and you, oh, and you, really? and you, you yeah. clearly had a timeline, which I, I, I love timelines at trial. I mean, cause they really bring everything together and uh, it's it, when you can walk through and obviously the jury had heard all the evidence. So, so they knew what the cheeseburger incident was. We just don't. Yeah. It was one of the, one of the patients. And so instead of saying one through eight, which nobody would remember, I tried to pick out the memorable issue in each of the patient cares. And this particular patient had um, eaten a cheeseburger and wasn't supposed to. And I don't know, bad things happened. Gotcha. Okay. (laughs) Gotcha. So when you, when you're walking through, um, you know, you are obviously using a timeline and I'm curious from a, just sort of a trial practice, you know, do you, did you have boards up there? Were you using PowerPoint slides? Were you using a combo? Well, another thing I would do for my next trial as a treat, I would hire a trial technician to like do all this Tony Stark style with like things, flying, <laughs> you know, flying through the screens, flying through the air and explosions. But this was like Luddite. Well, we had an Elmo and we, you know, I would put this, so I would have to go back and put my slide on and do this. Oh, this is funny though. The, um, the judge was an excellent judge. She was, uh, she formed the first female um, only law firm, I think in Boston back in the day. Um, and she did a ton of criminal works, very, very good trial attorney, and good judge. Um, but it was definitely her way of the highway. So, right. so it, because she was a criminal judge, I think she liked to have a clear line of sight to the um, court officer, the bailiff for her protection from criminal things. So the bailiff was on the other side of the room. The jury was back over here and clear across the room was the bailiff. So her line of sight to him was 
was way in the back and my, my, um, or my projection screen had to be behind that so that she could, they could see each other. And I'm like, but the jury can't see. And she goes, yeah, yeah, I know. Like, well, <laughs> well, can I move it? She's like, no. Why should the jury see the evidence? I don't understand. <laughs> so I had the, I had the screen, the, you know, whatever the, the exhibit up on the screen. And then I would read the whole thing. And then doesn't it say this? Um, which is, seems just very silly because it's up there on the screen. And, but it actually worked to my favor because then, you know, you could put some emphasis on it. Yeah. And you're, you're, you're hitting the auditory learners and the visual learners and. Right. Well, the visual learners would need binoculars. So you couldn't <laughs> yeah, <see that>. right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you brought that up because I feel like that does end up being one of the stressful things at the beginning of trial that I don't think we've ever talked about in the show is that you get in that courtroom and you actually see how many lawyers and boxes and boards and projector screens are going to be in there. And then you have to just figure out where everything goes, where the judge is going to be happy with it. And the jury can see it and opposing counsel can see it and the witness can see it. And it's always chaotic. Yeah. Yeah. I would say probably a week or two before you have to be setting up just the logistics of like you say, where the screen is going to go as if you don't have enough to do in the two weeks before trial. But if you don't do it, obviously many judges get very, um, angry if you don't ask their permission and let them, oh, yeah. this is their courtroom, you do it their way. So, yes, we, there was that. I, I remember trying a case, uh, this is years ago, and it was actually a med mal case um, where uh, the judge had one place where she would allow the screen to be up and it was, you know, back and um, nobody could see it. And I remember walking over to my to my defense counsel and I said, uh, I said, don't you think the screen would be, you know, somewhere uh, better off, you know, if, if uh, everybody could see? He's like, yeah, absolutely. And I was like, well, why don't you go ask the judge to move? The screen? <laughs> and he's, like, he's like, I'm not asking her because she had made it very clear. She didn't want to be challenged on anything. I was like, I'm not asking her. You can ask her. <laughs> like two brothers. You go ask mom. No, I'm not doing it. <laughs> um, I, I wanted to ask you about. So um, you, the. The the large damages that you had for compensatory were the emotional distress claim, and it wasn't clear to me whether uh, not that was intentional uh, infliction of emotional distress. In Georgia, we've got intentional infliction of emotional distress and negligent infli- infliction. But in in order to prevail on a negligent infliction, you got to show some sort of physical impact. Um, so was that an intentional tort the uh, the emotional distress claim? Uh- no, no, it, it would be barred by our workers' comp exclusivity up here. I mean, if it arises out of work, okay. you can't, you couldn't do it. So that's just, that's just emotional stress resulting from. Oh, uh, okay. So you're not, I got you. So you're not showing the elements of intent and things. It's just, that's just right. part of the damages. I got you. Okay. That's the fallout of what they did to her. The result basically. Yeah. Okay. Cause I was thinking, you know, about this, this question of uh, the punitive damages and, you know, you know, because I've tried an, an intentional infliction of emotional distress claim, and I knew if I won intentional infliction of emotional distress, the jury is going to be with me on punitives, too. Um, and so, you know, and luckily they were. Um, but I, I was just wondering if that came into the, the thought process on on uh, going for punitives in addition to that. But it sounds like they were unrelated. Yeah, I mean, up in Mass, you only get punitives in two cases, two types of cases. These discrimination cases, written retaliation falls under that, and wrongful death. So, in my mind, if it's on the table, go for it. 
Right. Worst they can say is no. I mean, I guess the worst worst would be they thought you were overreaching and then they, you know, go against you. But you got to feel that out as well. Um, and also, you could just change your mind again and not go for it. You don't when you're giving right. your closing. If you don't have a good feel for it, you could just not do it. But the, that was the other thing. So they, it's it's normal in in Massachusetts to try it in one phase as opposed to two phases for the jury um, because normally in Georgia you got to get you when your compensatory verdict first and then get the jury to say yes to punitives and then you move on to a second phase where you put in your evidence on punitives but the, in massachusetts it's all one phase right okay okay um and it sounded like you i mean obviously they were with you on punitive damages but in terms of the amount um how did you handle that did you suggest numbers to them I did. Yeah. We, in Massachusetts, we just started to be allowed to ask for numbers in the last couple of years. So it's um, kind of a new thing. And I think a lot of lawyers are split. Some think that you should ask and some think that, that you shouldn't. And I think uh, I could totally understand that. It's, it's a factor of your personality as a lawyer and also the jury and how you think it's going. Uh, and those are also different types of cases. In my mind, I think... Um, my thinking was for an employment case, they likely wouldn't be in the same ballpark as I was. So even if they didn't agree with me on, on that high of a number, um, I would, you know, kind of give them an idea, but they, um, I, I don't know if you saw it in the closing, but I asked for the 25 million and that's what they gave me. Right. I must fell off my chair. <laughs> <laughs> I, know, I know. So did any part, we always talk about this. Did any part of you be like, oh, I wish I asked for more? Or were you just happy with that 25? Oh, no, I was happy. You know, and you, I always, I mean, that was a reach. There is this, this very, because, you know, you're in the quorum for weeks. You're only seeing the same faces. You sort of become like a, a mini dysfunctional family for a couple of weeks anyways. And there was a, a court officer. He was great. And he was an older Italian guy and to go, how's it going? And so he, um, when in, you couldn't see it from the transcript, but when I was giving that closing, I said, you know, cause I was still like unsure myself. And I said, you know, and, and this is, and the next, the last thing I'm talking about is punitives and this is for egregious behavior. And, and you know, I, I looked up, you know, because nobody knows what egregious means. I'm like, well, all right. So, or evil was, is in our statute. It's like egregious or evil. And I'm like, evil, that sounds like a horror movie. So let's, I looked it up in the dictionary. This is what evil says. You know, it's moral turpitude. It's, it's um, um, repugnant behavior, et cetera. And so uh, whatever I said, that's happened here, X, Y, and Z. And that's why I'm asking for, and then I pause. And then the Ralph goes, as soon as you paused, I knew it wasn't going to be good. I said, don't do it, Allison. Don't do it. <laughs> but then you did it. And then you did it. It was, it was very funny. It was like, it was like you're right on the edge. Like, should I jump? Like, just jump. <laughs> was your heart beating fast? <laughs> I was like, are you going to pull this off? Because if you don't pull it off, they might, you might lose all credibility. They think you're overreaching. But I'm like, got to go for it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so related to the verdict form, the the jury awarded amounts for, you know, assigned damages basically to the hospital and then also to the defendant nurse manager. Was that, it sounded like the, the hospital was going to be vicariously liable for the nurse manager. Was it a, 
was it a strategic decision by you to have her listed on the verdict form as well? Or is that um, a Massachusetts thing? Uh, no, it was my decision. I could have just gone with um, with just the hospital, but I wanted her on it. I wanted her to have skin in the game. It's joint and several liability. So what if they were in for 1% and they assigned it all to her, it still would have been on them. So financially, I think it's six, one half dozen, the other. And I think that she was really, in my opinion, um, sort of a, an unlikable person. And, right. and I just thought it was, it would help. It could only help because if it's joined several, what does it matter? Right. Yeah. I, I saw you, uh, uh, were talking about when you were cross-examining her on one of the meetings she had with your client and her comment was something to the effect of, well, she said I'm black and blah, 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 blah. Something like that. Was was that what she had said? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> that was in her deposition, I think. And so, of course, I, you know, obviously we didn't win on the discrimination claim, which is not that uncommon. It's really hard to, to show what's in somebody's head. But that quote was, you know, gold. Right. It just showed like absolute indifference to anybody's you know, feelings or suffering or any, any diversity or anything. So, Did, you know, and I, I saw that um, you, you mentioned in your closing that uh, I, I think they had brought in uh, three uh, black employees to basically come in and testify about how they liked this particular manager and that she was good. And, the, and, and then I thought the way you handled it was, was, was good, but it was basically that, you know, it's clear that she sort of got this, uh, you know, punishment and reward system. If you testify good about her, she's going to reward you. If you punish, if you, you know, testify bad about her, she's going to punish you. So, you know, right. take that for what it's worth. How did you handle those, uh, those witnesses on cross? Well, um, there was, there was a, a very funny story before this. There's just so many crazy, I was like, is this, does everyone else's trial go like this? Cause there's always like a circus when I do these things, but there was, um, this group of women, especially one in particular, they were very um, contentious and sort of loud and like just, I don't know, just a little bit extra. So the so there had been some eyeball, some side eyeing going on between my client's son, allegedly, and them. And I said, you know what, we are in the we are in the last few innings of this game. I cannot have any sort of intimidation of witness. I don't believe it's true, but I, I can't take the risk. So I asked uh, the son to just step out for the remainder of the day until these witnesses were gone from because she wouldn't sequester. The judge refused to sequester any of the witnesses. So everybody was sitting in the courtroom. So it was only on my side. It was only my client who's 70, this point, 72 or three sitting there and everybody else in the courtroom was the defense side witnesses. And so, um, and, you know, I'm I'm at, in Massachusetts. The plaintiff is in the first table right in front of the judge. And then the defense is at the table behind us. And then the rest, I mean, all I see is the judge and the witness and siding out of the jury. But I have no idea what's going on behind me. But I knew that the only person in the courtroom from my side was my very um, pleasant 73-year-old uh, plaintiff. So, anyway, the judge who just takes no guff, no nonsense. She said, I think um, their side was questioning and they had already given me a hard time about some other things. So I had like, you know, a little, little bone to pick anyways. I was like, Ugh. so she, their side's questioning one of their defense cuffs. The other one is 
right behind me. And the judge says, everybody stop. And I was like, oh, I know it's not me because I'm not doing anything because I'm just sitting here. <laughs> so it's good. I said, you people in the back, I know that you have not been here for this whole trial. We have rules in this courtroom. You stop laughing at people. You stop. I think it was, it must've been my witness. They were crossing. I don't actually remember, but they, they said, she's like, you know, there's decorum in this quorum. You will not mock people. You will not mimic people. You will not laugh. So I, I knew that it was these women. They were the ones that were just about to oh. come up and testify. So I, of course, made a, because I knew it was in my field, made a big show. I was like, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And they looked back there. <clears throat> yeah. And then the next people up was them. Um, but also the, the main woman in that, that witness wrote a, a like a, an absurd report that was like, you know, I could hear somebody scream, her patient screaming when I got off the elevator and the elevator's like a quarter of a mile away. And I'm like, hold on, you're a nurse too, right? Do you, is it your, is it your practice to let people scream in agony because, because it's not your patient? It's everybody's patient, right? So if she's a bad nurse, are you also a bad nurse? No. I'm like, okay. Whatever. Anyways, that was, that was that sector. <laughs> But that is so, so, so the way the courtroom is set up, your defense counsel is, is just beh- behind you, behind your head. Yes. Yeah. Oh my God. I would we, hate that. We, we've got <laughs> a you courtroom. What's going on? We've got a courtroom like that in, uh, here in Chatham, uh, um, where they sit front and back. It's, uh, I, I don't, I don't like that courtroom at all. Well, I'm sure other courtroom, the other courtrooms probably are having to decide, but the one that we were in, that's how it was set up. Yeah. So I had yeah. no idea what was going on behind me at any time. But that was so funny because I knew, even though I couldn't see, I knew it was not my people. So I was, right. big, I was like, well, now we're going to take a big look and see who's <laughs> disrupting, who's <laughs> laughing at people. Let's all look at who's laughing at people. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> right. It is funny how much stuff like that goes on during a trial, you know, the interaction between the other side and the witnesses and every, you know, family members and stuff in the courtroom that that obviously doesn't show up on the transcript. You know, you go back and look at the transcript later and you're like, what was happening here? There's this whole other side of the story that that right. you forget about. Who's eating cheeseburgers? What? I want a cheeseburger. Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Speaking of cheeseburger, it's uh, it's lunchtime, uh, <laughs> right? So, Yvonne, one thing I've learned in this business is that you can't go get a great trial verdict to be talked about on the Great Trials podcast unless you get the case in the first place, and that's why we're talking about digital law marketing. It's Digital Law Marketing. They are a great company that does website design, SEO, social media marketing, content marketing, and everything you need to market your firm online. Yeah, I mean, think about it. The first time that you hear about whether it's a lawyer or a law firm or a business or a doctor, what do people do now? You look them up. You just, you, you Google them. And so your website has to look good. Your content has to be good. And that's what digital law marketing can help you with. Yeah. And they make sure that you can be found too, because you can have a great looking website, but people type into Google and you don't come up at all. They will help with that as well. And the thing that I really like about digital law marketing is that they don't go out and market for your competitors. So if you get them for your area, they won't go across the street and go advertise for a competitor or law firm. 
They also have such a fantastic team. They, when I made partner at the firm, they sent me flowers, which was so nice and such a personal touch. Um, they do our firm's website and for better or worse, it's very easy to find me in my headshot that I hate <laughs> right. because they're so good at what they do. Exactly. Uh, and, and, you know, the thing, uh, another thing I like about them is they're, they're extremely responsive. As you said, like if you ask them to do something, they will get it done that day and they don't overpromise. They won't tell you things just because they think you want to hear it, which without mentioning names, I've heard from some other website marketing companies and digital law marketing will not do that. Yes, they're so, awesome. So call uh, Digital Law Marketing. You can call them at 877-916-0644 or you can look them up at digitallawmarketing.com. Again, that's digitallawmarketing.com. And tell them we sent you. So I was wondering in, in, a, in a, a, a retaliation discrimination case, I mean, obviously your client uh, is, is huge. I mean, even bigger than I would think in most cases where, I mean, it's, you know, we always say that, you know, a, a great client can make a, a good case fantastic and a bad client can make a good case, you know, basically unwinnable. Um, but um, so I, I got to imagine that's almost amplified in a case like this where you there's so much of, uh, you know, her version of events versus others versions of events. So I'm wondering, you know, first of all, obviously your client must have done well on the stand, but how much... Um, how much cross-examination did she have to withstand and, and go through? Because I would imagine it's probably quite a bit in a case like this. She was on a stand for two days. Um, oh, and it was, it was also made more difficult because um, she has a very thick accent. And so it was difficult to sort of, it, certain key points were difficult to understand totally. And I, want, I really wanted to make sure the jury understood it. So I would kind of try to rephrase the question and, and really just sort of group in what she just said. I mean, I, you know, by no, no means putting any words to her mother, but I wanted to make sure they understood what she was saying. And the judge was like, listen, you, we need to move this along. Come on. So, um, yeah, but it was two days and I do absolutely agree. It's so important. Your client, just like in any case, but this one, especially something like this, where your, your knowledge of your job is it, um, at issue, you need to really be able to know your stuff. And I can't help her with that. She knew it. She was a nurse for over 20 years, no problems. And she knew it like the back of her hand, but, and also, but she is not a professional testifier in court. So you have to prep and you have to prep. And then I play the defense. I play the judge. So it's as much preparation as you can possibly do. It's still when you get up there, there's still, you know, yeah, just like anything else in trial, things go sideways and you have to just regroup. Yeah. I mean, preparing your client to be on the stand for two days, that, that is hard to do because that, that it's just, um, you know, it's, it's so taxing on them that it, you know, at some point they, you're afraid they might just get tired and, you know, say something off the cuff that, uh, you know, they didn't mean the way they said it, but I mean, that's just, uh, that's, that's gotta be very difficult. Yeah. And, and the nerves, you know, like we, this happens a lot, you know, when I spend a lot of time preparing a client for a deposition and then I'm sitting in the deposition, like, do you remember anything that we talked about? Right, right. <laughs> you filed a lawsuit. Do you remember that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's hard, but you know, at least in my, in my, these types of cases, they really want to get their story out. They want to get the side out because they feel wronged and they want to say, no, this is what happened. I do know my stuff. I treated that patient with the same care as anybody else. And for them, it's sort of cathartic. It's their date, their proverbial day in court. Right. 
Well, I, I want to talk about your attorney's fees, but before I forget, um, so with the the other nurse that you represented, what happened with her case? It resolves after this trial. <laughs> Confidential. <laughs> and I, is, did I see right that she's still working at the uh, uh, Brigham and Women's Hospital? Neither is. Oh, neither is. I knew you, I knew uh, Miss Toussaint wasn't, but I thought I, I had seen that the um, your other client was still working there, but she's no longer there. Yeah, she was at the time, and then she's she's going off to bigger and better things. Okay. Okay. Awesome. Um, well, so let's talk about the attorney's fees because I thought this was was really great. That um, well, first of all, so you you, you got an award of of four hundred fourteen thousand dollars in attorney's fees, and there's a really amazing order. I don't know if it's um, publicly out there somewhere. You sent it to us, but it's, it's on Westlaw. Okay, it is really <laughs> awesome. I Somebody have, uh, submitted it. I, I mean, I, you know, if if I had a judge talk about me this way, I think I'd have it framed. I mean, this it's, is uh, this is really good. It is so great. I know. I'm trying to figure out if I have one that has number on it, but I guess can you talk a little bit about, um, I guess, procedurally, the attorney's fees, what you have to do to sort of at least initially. Um, you know, because I think it happens like in Georgia, it happens sometimes with just certain with uh, specific issues or if you've got a sanctions order or something. But can you talk a little bit about, you know, how you establish your fees and everything that you do to support what you're asking the court for? It's um, built into the statute in these types of cases that you get uh, attorney's fees that the plaintiffs do. And we have to take contemporaneous time records um, or keep contemporaneous time records so I just kept track. Um, to be honest, I, I'm sure that they got a discount because I'm sure there's a few things that I did not right. keep track of. But um, yeah, yeah, in these cases, you just submit it. It's standard. They oppose it. But I, I did a pretty fair job. I think I cut out. I think every task that was for both plaintiffs, I split in half because they had been severed right before trial. And so I, she didn't. I don't think she took anything off of the substance. Um, she knocked me $50 on the hourly just to be a judge, you know? <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Exactly. Exactly. Right. But I want to read, I want to read what she said about you because it's just, uh, it's just too good. But when she's talking about the fact that even though you had uh, lost the discrimination claim, you couldn't have imagined a more resounding victory for your client. And then she goes, uh, she goes on to say trial counsel McClellan deserves significant credit for her ability to marshal the evidence in both affirmative and defensive mo modes to persuade the jury to arrive at this result. While the law is relatively straightforward, the facts of this case were not. I mean, it's just, uh, I mean, you really can't get higher praise. And, and that was just uh, uh, great uh, for the judge to include that in, in her order. Yeah, I was over the moon. It was really, very kind of her to say. And obviously, she's very observant. So that's right. great. <laughs> yeah, <that's right>. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, and can you, I mean, so can you talk a little bit about I mean, one of the things I thought was really cool about it um, as, as a woman was seeing you kind of, you know, even if there was this statutory basis for it, that you just kind of reading it, I was like, this is somebody who just like knows her value. She knows the value of her work. She knows the value of the rate that she should fight for, for the work that she's done for her clients, even if they were claims. Um, 
you know, that you either voluntarily dismissed or that, you know, for strategic reasons, you didn't really focus on. And I'm just sort of interested how much that even played into it, or do you even have to, you know, they oppose your fees and then the judge basically saw what she saw and sides with you. And, and that's kind of it. No, it was, I mean, I have, most of my trials have been all criminal. I've done, I think one other of the civil ones where I, I asked for a fee. This was, as they pointed out in their um, opposition, I think it was right when I started this case, I was, just concluding a trial and going through my fee petition on that. And I think that time I asked for maybe $350 an hour or something. Right. Um, Cause I really had no idea. I was like, I don't know what, um, but then after, after this whole trial, I just felt like I, you know, I did as good of a job as, as a, you know, a white shoe, huge law firm. And I'm asking for their hourly rates. I mean, some partners in the big firms are $1,200 an hour. So I didn't think 600 was that high. And if an insurance defense firm chooses to cut their rate, that's their problem. It's not my problem if you charge $150 an hour. I felt that this was, the quality work was there. The verdict was there. And I should at least, again, I should go for it. If she wants to knock me on it, that she can, totally fine. Um, But I thought it was worth it. And then I was a little... I was a little snarky and acted there. In my reply to the opposition, they said, well, she shouldn't get it. She'd ask for 350 and there was all these claims and whatever. And I said, that's fine. In the alternative, I'll just take the sum of all three of your right. <laughs> hourlies. <laughs> <laughs> because I did it by myself. <laughs> right. That's right. That's right. Which is a huge part of it. I mean, because if you if you had had a team, I mean, you're you probably would have had a, a much larger request for uh, attorneys' fees. And um, oh you know. yeah, yeah. Oh, and then I said, well, show me your bills. Show me what you build your client for. Let the case run for five years. Show me how much you build, and I'll just build that amount. Right. Right. Yeah. Exactly. I, I didn't get that. it. I didn't see the bills. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, and I do have to say, um, so in the costs that you recovered, I think were fourteen thousand five hundred and seventy dollars or something like that. Does that include things like expert fees? Because that seems low to me. But um, was, does oh, that yeah. include when, everything? Okay. When when we had their expert was testifying, her hourly and the toll thing was like three times as much as mine was. They, I think they were gearing up and say, well, how much do you charge? And she was like, five dollars. And they're like, oh. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, she didn't charge very much. And and my the costs and expenses for me are I don't I definitely am not organized to keep track of like postage and mileage and all that. I just charge for depositions, experts, mediation, the big yeah. things. Okay. So yeah, I'm sure that that was that it was pretty low comparatively, but it did the trick. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, did you get a chance to talk to your uh, jury afterwards? Are you allowed to do that up in Massachusetts? Yeah, we, um, we can after they're obviously they're dismissed. Uh, most of them had gone before, um, before I had come out, but I did find two. And I said, you know, did you think I was a little too hard? You know, like some people say sometimes I get aggressive. I don't know. But uh, I said, did you think I was a little too much? And they're like, no, you were just perfect. And specifically regarding that manager, you know, we could see that she wasn't telling the truth and you hit her and she needed it. So 
So I chuckle that away from that, then I'm perfect. So Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, you know, the other thing I was thinking about this is, you know, when you're going up, I mean, Boston's a, you know, a big city. So it's, it's not like being a small town and you've got the big uh, employer. But I mean, you're going up against a, a very prestigious hospital that has, a, you know, by all means, a very good reputation. How do you handle that in, um, in your, uh, in your voir dire and, and picking the jury? Uh, well, we didn't get to do panel voir dire in this case, so we had to do individual. And it was very, you know, every judge is different. If Either way you're doing it. Sometimes you're doing panel and they want the questions ahead of time and they will hold you to it. Or individual, sometimes the judge takes a more active role, shall we say. Um, so I was really just trying to suss out how I felt about them as a person, how they you know, you're asking sort of rote questions at that point for a sidebar and you're, and you're getting just a few questions. It's really not as effective as, as panel, but, um, you know, it was just, how do you feel about this? Can you be fair? What do you do for work? Um, things like yeah. that. So it, it was not like I've, I've watched many things on panel for dear and it was, was not anything like that because you could really, glean so much more information. It's interesting with the jury in this, we picked 14. We were, we had already run through the, the jury pool and the judge was um, cognizant of time, we'll say. So we had 14 and to, to bring in more ex, you know, extra people would have meant going, starting um, again the next morning. So we were not allowed to do that. We started with 14. We immediately lost two. And then, uh, Somebody was going through like a breakup or something. I'm like, oh, just okay, it's fine. You'll be fine. But so then we dropped below 12 and you need both parties to consent at that point. So, and we're already two days in. So my client is on record now with not only her deposition, well, the deposition transcript wasn't that thorough, but, but the trial transcript was very thorough because I had done her whole direct of everything and they had already crossed me. Like, we, if we miss trial right now, they're going to, they have two days of transcripts to just maul her with later. So I was sweating it out and we dropped, um, we dropped to 11. They agreed to keep going, but I had to get 10 out of 11 um, for, for a verdict in our favor, which is almost unanimous. And I, we had done a little jury research earlier this year and I noticed a lot of other states have got that or some are even unanimous, which seems a little stringent for a civil case, but that's what we um, think. We're, we're unanimous. We're unanimous. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's tough. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my that's gosh. Unanimous. I, my palms are sweating though. Just thinking about like what was going to happen if you were going to have to, if you were going to have to mistry the case. Yes. With your client being the only one oh. that testified. It's right. yeah. I, it was, it was a nail biter and, uh, I feel like everything in this case was, I'm sure it's every trial. Things go sideways. You have to figure it out. And this is just not uh, stress that I needed. That was actually one of my questions for you. Can I think, you know, Steve was going to get to how you can talk about um, what you look for when you're taking an employment case, because they are so difficult. I mean, I mentioned this at the beginning, but a lot of people, I think, just stay away from them because how hard and intimidating they they can be. It seems like the hurdles are so much higher for employment um, in employment actions for plaintiffs. Yeah, just like any other case, you are looking, 
you know, when, when a trial attorney meets their client, they're assessing them, uh, just how you think they'll come across, what your ideas of their credibility are, and just that sort of intangible. So that's important. And when I go through the um, interview with them, I just play the defendant and say, well, what about this? Well, why wouldn't you do this? Why didn't you tell anybody? Who did you tell? Well, why did you keep working? All the, all, cause you know, I hear the same defenses over and over. So you just incorporate them into your initial interview so that you can establish, okay, is this, is this good or is this bad? And how do you think when they're telling you their, their response, are you getting a good feel for it? Do you believe it? Um, because it's no good. This case that we went to trial was five years after I took it. And I do everything on contingency. So I don't get paid until the very end. And if you lose, I get I've safeguarded it in my fee room, so I get one third. So I get zero. I still get my one third of zero. So, it's, <laughs> <laughs> so I'm pretty protected there. Uh, but yeah, it's it, it's important to choose wisely in the beginning. But basically, I just run them through the defense, um, their normal defenses, and see how they answer me and see how they and, and listen to what they have to say because you can you can tell. Um, and either it's another challenging part is because they're the corp, they have control over all the employees. I mean, I can I can interview a non-relevant, not non-relevant, but a non-player, but I have to locate them and then get them to speak out against some place that they're currently employed at. It's a huge right. Wow. It's very difficult. So yeah, that's what I do. I play defendant. I I mean that's I I like that because I think it's I, I think especially when I was first starting out, I was hesitant to do that because you want the potential client to like you, you know, they've gone through something that's been really hard, but you know, you're really, you know, you're not doing yourself any favors and you're really not doing them any favors either. If you aren't asking them those tough questions and being tough on them. And I say, you know, I'm asking you this, I'm not trying to be hard on you, but this is what they will ask you. And so I need to know this up front. Yeah. Um, and they understand. And I'll, and then some will say, well, the defendant would ask you this. What's your answer to that question? Yeah. So I don't look like the bad guy, but you have um, to, like I said, it's five years. That was five years. Right. Plus $14,000 plus all that time. And I get a third of zero. It wouldn't be good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, so how is uh, Miss Toussaint doing these days? Uh, you know, I, I'm pretty sure she's living the dream. Um, she's, um, she is retired, you know, and she's taking time to do things for herself. And, you know, she, she, she was, she was in her seventies when we went to trial and, and, you know, I'm just like, just take some time for you. Go, go travel, <laughs> go travel yeah. and go, and she can't go anywhere. But, <laughs> oh, uh, yeah. well, but uh, one of the things that, uh, I, the, you might've been an, inter an interview after the verdict, but one of the things that you said that I just thought was so um, important was that maybe it was in your closing was just about, you know, she did, your client did the right thing. You know, she stood up for something that wasn't right. And she told the truth. And it's so often people are not rewarded for that. And she certainly wasn't rewarded for that at first, but you know, how nice that she had you to right. vindicate her in the end. Yes, yeah. it's good. I understand that like, people don't want to get involved. They don't, they have a family to feed. They, they can't risk it. And that's unfortunate. And you can see with her case, by the time she was rewarded for it, a regular 
family would have, I mean, and she too, she had to get a couple jobs and keep working. I mean, it's a long road to get to the end and you have to be able to financially support yourself and your families. But everyone still should do the right thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, but I mean, you're right. I mean, and, you know, and for her to go through, you know, having her whole career as a nurse, as a successful nurse, you know, and then to end it this way where, you know, essentially they, they're trying to make her look like she didn't know how to do her job, that she was putting patients at risk. I mean, that's just got to be, a, you know, um, not only just the loss of her job, but as you pointed out for the emotional distress, just the amount of anxiety and depression uh, that you go through because, you know, we identify ourselves by our jobs many times. So, yeah. Uh, and I think it was either Steve or Yvonne, you guys said that you pointed out that she had to take that BCAT test, the basic, the name of the test is basic nursing assessment test after, you know, 20 plus years. And she's given like a one-on-one test. And she said that people she had mentored were now sort of like not asking her questions anymore and bossing her around. Like it's, just humiliating. And that was, it was by design. It was, it was meant to be that, that way. Um, yeah. Well, um, I wanted to be, Yvonne, you mentioned it, but I wanted to read your very, the first paragraph of your opening or your closing statement, because I thought it was so good. Um, but you opened it up by saying, if you don't stand for something, you'll fall for everything. Jesse Toussaint stood up for what was right in this case and she paid the price. I mean, I thought that uh, just encapsulated your case so well and was uh, just a great way to start the closing. Thanks. Chill. It'll be great. It'll be great in the movie. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I'm just trying to decide who's going to play me. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Somebody 20 something accurately reflecting my age. Right, right. <laughs> well, you do have great skin. Our, our listeners can't say, but Allison's skin is really amazing. <laughs> I left that out of her bio. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, Steve, since you're you're the Yvonne now, so any any questions that uh, you wanted to ask that I just trampled right over? No, I think we've uh, we've we've gone through this case uh, in detail. Uh, Allison, is there anything that we haven't talked about that you want to make sure that we've uh, that our listeners hear? Um. I don't think so. I mean, I'm not sure who the listeners are. If they're trial attorneys, I would say uh, just trust in yourself and go for it because yeah. you know more than you think you know and you're better than you think you are. Don't let doubt creep in. The worst that yeah. could happen is you lose. You know, yeah, and, but- and, I, you know and I'll add to that, and, and this is with all due respect to my uh, the opposing counsel in, in the cases who are all very good lawyers, but when you're, especially when you're young and you're, thinking about trying your first case and you think they're going to be so great on the other side, they're all just human beings too. They make mistakes. They're not these, I mean, yeah, they're, they're very good trialers. I'm not going to say they're not, but they, they're, they're not going to, you know, come out and shock the jury and the jury's going to stand up and start, you know, clapping at the end of their uh, opening or anything like that. I mean, you know, try your cases. Right. <laughs> that <laughs> is like, 
<laughs> that is like an anxiety dream, though, I mean, that I'm going to have now. An anxiety nightmare. If that did happen, I'd turn to my client and, and encourage them to try and settle the case. <laughs> <laughs> you hear how good that opening was? Settle now. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, Allison, thank you so much for being on the show and talking to us about this case. It's been an awesome discussion and a really fantastic result for what sounds like a very deserving client. Thank you so much for having me. And Yvonne, I think uh, I think Steve's having a run for his money with you as the lead here. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Job. <laughs> uh, Absolutely. So, thank you both for having me. It was a pleasure. And as a reminder, if you want to learn up more, learn more about our guest today, Allison McClellan, you can look her up at McClellanLawFirm.com. That's M-A-C-L-E-L-L-A-N LawFirm.com. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? Thank you for listening to the Great Trials Podcast. You can visit us online at greattrialspodcast.com. We realize in the show that sometimes we use terminology that not everybody would be familiar with or that uh, we haven't uh, always explained every part of the jury trial process. So we've done two special shows, one on legal terminology, and Yvonne, that's going to be hopefully not that boring. Uh, we, we, we've uh, included a number of people in that so that uh, we can make that more entertaining and a show on the jury trial process. And we've also put uh, links to uh, those episodes on our greattrialspodcast.com, as well as a uh, glossary of the legal terminology on the uh, website. Yeah. So check those out. If you have a trial you would like to be featured on the Great Trials podcast, or if you're a trial lawyer and you want to be on the show, or if you're just a person who has something that you want to say to us, please email us at info at greattrialspodcast.com. Note if you have something mean to say, we don't have email. Right, exactly. <laughs> we only need a positive commentary. Yeah, we're fragile. Yeah. Um, you can also rate or review us uh, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever. Again, if you have something mean to say, um, our podcast is not available for review. We, we also want to thank uh, the people behind the scenes. Uh, one is Taras Misher, who is our uh, uh, podcast extraordinaire. Uh, he is from Podcast on the Go. And Allison Hirsch uh, from Capricorn Communications. She is a magician when it comes to putting these shows together and getting them scheduled. And this has been the Great Trials Podcast, and we appreciate your time and hope you'll listen again. Thank you for listening.